Hi everyone, welcome to another podcast episode. My name is Claire, and today I'll be talking with Lisa and her experiences traveling to China and experiencing the very different regional cultures, including her interactions with the local minority communities, including the Uyghur Muslims. I would also like to mention that in this podcast episode, I did mispronounce Uyghur as Uyghur multiple times, so I do want to apologize for that, but the right pronunciation is Uyghur. So without further ado, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Fluency for Teens podcast episode. And today we have a very special guest. So would you please introduce yourself? Um, my name is Lisa. I live in Germany, um, in Berlin. And yep, that's all for now, I guess. <laughs> cool. And uh, what languages are you studying? Um, I have been studying Chinese uh, for quite a while, over 10 years, I think probably 15 years. Um, I also studied English, of course, in school, um, learned French. Uh, I have mostly forgotten that by now, I think. I learned some Turkish and I'm trying to get back into that um, right now. Um, and I also learned some Korean and some Japanese, but I would say I only have a basic knowledge. Um, and also some Uyghur, because I studied the Uyghurs of China, um, but I'm not really good at that. So <laughs> that didn't really work out quite well. So I just have also quite a basic understanding of that language. All right, that's awesome. And was Chinese kind of the first language that you've, um, was that like the first foreign language that you've learned? Um, no, actually not. Uh, so um, in Germany, we have to learn English in school as a first foreign language. And then you have to choose a second foreign language, which, which usually is French or Spanish. Some schools also have Italian. And I chose French, which I really liked. Um, but I wasn't really that interested in France as a country or in the French culture at all. Um, so then later I decided to learn um, Chinese. So you could say maybe that's the first language that I, foreign language that I studied that I was really personally interested in and didn't just learn at school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what interested you about the Chinese language? Oh, that's a really hard question. Because <laughs> I, uh, well, I really, I really can't tell you. I just, um, as a child, I was always interested in East Asian culture. Uh, first, it was more like Mongolian culture. I really love to read those children's book about Mongolia and, you know, riding horses there and just wild tribes and this very like uh, exotic um, ethno-romanticism. I really like that. Um, and I tried to learn Chinese when I was 12, um, but my parents didn't really find a place uh, to do that. At the time, it was not as common as I think it is now. Um, so I don't know, I just always, I guess I liked it because it was quite exotic to me. And the school that I went to had a lot of foreigners, actually. So probably 60% of my class were non-German um, from all different kinds of countries, um, like European countries, but also Asian countries. Um, uh, Arabic, Turkish students, uh, but nobody really was from East Asia. And so that really got me into thinking, you know, what are these people like? What do they do? And I think that really played a big role in me being interested in that. It was kind of like 
this sense of mystery that I had mm-hmm. about China. Yeah, for sure. Chinese is definitely a very fascinating language to learn. Mm-hmm. So you've also been to China before, right? Yes, I have lived there for four years in total. Um, one year in one place, which was in 2009. I lived in Jiangxi. And then I lived three more years in Gansu and Xinjiang um, after I had already graduated from university. Okay, great. And can you please talk a bit about your like experience living in China? Oh, wow. That's <laughs> how much time do you have? Plenty. <laughs> well, well, yeah, it's, it's such a big deal. Well, I guess maybe the first thing to say is um, that there's such a huge difference between the different regions of China that I also didn't know about before. So as I said, the first time I went, I was still um, an undergraduate student and I went there as a teacher of English, as most of us do. (laughs) Um, And I went to Jiangxi, which is central or southern China. I didn't understand anything anybody said, although I had already studied I think one or two years of Chinese before that. Um, And it was a very different Chinese culture from what I then experienced later in Western China. And I think this is a a major point that, you know, many people are forgetting that China is, although it's one nation, one country, there are really many different parts to it that are quite different, not only language-wise, but I mean, even to say, you know, study Chinese culture, that is very misleading because there is not one Chinese culture. I mean, that's true for, I guess, every country, but I feel like that's especially true uh, for China. And so when I went to Western China, it was a whole different experience. Um, But still the main thing that I would even say bothered me in both places was people staring at me. That was like the first (laughs) impression that I had. So that was really hard for me at first, um, that people weren't used to seeing non-Chinese in their everyday life. And that really took me a while to get used to. Um, But I really enjoyed being there. I really liked talking to the people. Everybody was very open to speak with me. And also, you know, Contrary to, I think, what a lot of foreigners experience in Germany or in Europe, people in China are really open to practice Chinese with foreigners. Mm-hmm. Um, so here people are kind of like, you know, you should speak our language, but they're not impressed if you speak some German. It's kind of expected. You know, you should speak some German if you come here or at least speak some English. And in China, I found that, you know, people just if you say ni hao, people are like freaking out, (laughs) you know, think you're really fluent in the language, um, which is, of course, the other extreme. Um, But I think that really helped me uh, to immerse in the culture because everybody was very welcoming and also really encouraged me to um, learn the language. Yeah. Mm, yeah and I also liked how you kind of mentioned before that China is not just like one homogenous uh, country Mm -hmm. um, and that there's like regional differences so can you maybe like tell us a bit about like some of the differences that you've experienced between like different regions well these are the the two main regions that I that I lived in so Mm -hmm. I can only talk about those two Um, and I think well there are a lot of differences. I think in the behavior of people that this is really hard for me to analyze because I mean, 
people are different anyway. Um, but I guess I found it a little bit more hectic in central or southern China and the West, everything was more casual and, you know, slow. There wasn't this hectic vibe that you sometimes find in, in Shanghai or in Beijing, but it, everybody was very casual. Um, of course, there are major differences in food. Um, that's also something that doesn't really seem important at first, but then if you're used to a certain kind of cuisine when you first go to China, I mean, everybody asks you about, you know, what did you eat there? And uh, then you go to a different place. It's a, it's a whole nother thing. So um, it was a totally different experience also for, you know, everyday life, eating and um, mm, I don't really know. There are a lot of a lot of things um, that I could talk about. So, do you have any specific question about that? Because, like, I'm just gonna open up a whole <laughs> discussion about those differences. Yeah, I think it's really it's it's difficult because there's such a big difference. It's really two different places and two different cultures. So it's kind of hard to compare them and to even say this is different and this is you know. This is very different from that because it's really not the same at all, I think, except that people, I, I was going to say look the same, but that is not even true. People also look very different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So you also mentioned earlier that you were learning uh, Uyghur, right? So can you maybe talk about like what led you to learning that language? Oh gosh, that's really, that has been a struggle. <laughs> so um, I, I'm researching um, ethnic minorities in China and specifically Uyghurs. And so I started to learn some Uyghur before I did my field work there, which was, I think, in 2015. Um, and I had been to Xinjiang before in 2012. I think that was the first time. Uh, and that got me interested in Uyghurs because, well, it, it was such a, another very different experience from what I had uh, known in the rest of China. Um, people were still so different. It was kind of like a little country inside a big country. You know, people, uh, it was a whole different experience and people were very different. And so um, that really fascinated me. So I wanted to learn the language um, also because I had learned some Turkish before. And this is also a Turkic language. And I thought that might make it easier, which was not really the case. First of all, because there are not really good resources to learn it. There are some resources, maybe I'm just lazy, um, but it's not, they don't make it easy for you. You don't have any apps that you have with Chinese or HSK. So you really have to immerse yourself into everyday life situations. But at the time I was, researching Min Kao Han women, which are Uyghur women that have been educated at Han Chinese schools. So the people that I spoke with, they actually spoke better Mandarin Chinese than their mother tongue, Uyghur. Uh, so I didn't really get a chance to speak Uyghur at all. Um, and so when I came back to Germany, I then really wanted to prepare well and learn the language here so that when I would go back a second time I would be able to speak to people but the second time it was already a very sensitive topic um, to speak Uyghur at all in daily life and on the street or in restaurants even ordering in Uyghur was considered kind of sensitive and so I never really got around to learning it very well 
Um, I can read some and I can understand a bit because of the Turkish knowledge that I have, um, but I cannot really speak because I have never spoken much Uyghur. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but I found that very uh, fascinating that you still, you know, kind of learned about a language about like the, from the ethnic groups in China, which I feel like aren't very talked about very often. Mm. Um, yeah. So what's like your uh, your experience interacting with these kind of local communities and um, these minority groups? Um, <clears throat> that's a big question, especially considering Uyghurs, uh, mm -hmm. which I wouldn't put into the same category than other ethnic minorities in China, um, because they have such a strong sense of their um, you know, ethnicity and uh, of their people. And this is, of course, as we all know, a very sensitive topic. Um, but I also found the same thing that I just told you about China in general, that there are not, there is not one Uyghur people, but there are different kinds of Uyghurs. And this is something that I constantly need to reconsider when I'm in China. There are so many different um, ethnic groups in China. There are so many different cultures. Um, it's really, mm, really, we shouldn't say we study China or Chinese culture mm -hmm. or, or even Uyghur culture. So what I just told you about the, the Minkau Han, uh, the Uyghurs that were educated at um, Han Chinese schools. Um, at first, I found it very easy to talk to them because they also spoke Chinese. They also speak very Biaojun Chinese, very standard Chinese, because it's also not really their mother tongue. So they also learned it at school. Um, so I found Xinjiang in general a really good place to learn Chinese for, for foreigners. Um, because there are people living there who also don't, often don't speak it very well. Um, but communicating with, for example, older Uyghurs, that was a little more difficult because they didn't, they often didn't speak Chinese very well. My Uyghur was kind of non-existent at the time. Um, and there's also always this kind of distrust because of the whole political situation. Um, but often people also mistook me for Uyghur, for a Uyghur woman on the streets. I look nothing like them, I think, but it's a very, very diverse community. Um, there's also people um, who live there from, from Russia. There's, of course, the Russian minority also. And there is uh, some kind of intermarriage. There are mixed children. So there are people, I often saw students on the street with like, who had like very, very white skin and like almost blonde or reddish hair who kind of also looked like me. Um, so I could understand that people would think I might be weaker. So I was often in this really awkward situation where I was, I don't know, taking the bus or, you know, um, just walking on the street. And after a while, if you are not a tourist, but you live there, you kind of get used to the whole situation to the surroundings and people also don't notice you as a tourist but you kind of look like a person who lives there because you look like you know what you're doing so people were constantly um talking to me on the street like strangers asking me a question where to go or you know asking for their way around in Uyghur so then I would have to reply in Chinese um I don't understand what you're saying I'm sorry I don't really speak Uyghur could you you know say that again and some of them were really shocked because they expected me to be weaker and then thought, oh, my God, what's wrong with this girl? She cannot even speak her own language. So this whole um, language learning situation was very, 
was often very complicated and it's very intertwined with the whole political situation. And for me, I was kind of in this in-between position and sometimes I found that hard to navigate. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I really liked um, how, or appreciated how you like shared your kind of perspective being in these communities from like a foreigner's perspective. That was really interesting to hear about. Yeah. Can mm-hmm. you also talk about a bit more like the Uyghur language? So like, is it very different from, um, you know, the standard Chinese? Like, is it the pronunciation that's a little different or? You mean Uyghur as the language? Yeah. Well, Uyghur is nothing like Chinese at all, like Mandarin Chinese at all. Uh, So it's a whole different um, language family. It's a Turkic language. So um, from what I understand, if you are Turkish, I don't think you can understand Uyghur. But I would say maybe, you know, if you're highly educated, you really are, you are a linguist, you really know your way around with languages, I think um, you could understand it a little bit. I heard some people, some Germans compare it to German and Swiss German, which is also, you know, quite different, but also in some ways the same. So um, no, it's nothing like like Chinese at all. It doesn't have any tones. Um, For me, it had a more uh, difficult grammar, definitely. The grammar is very similar or almost the same to Turkish. Uh, but this is just my basic understanding of the language. So I'm definitely not an expert on the Uyghur language. As of right now, it's written in Arabic script, which also makes it a bit harder. And there are certain letters um, that only exist in the Uyghur script that don't exist in the Arabic script. Um, But it has been written in different kind of scripts throughout time, different time periods had different scripts. So at some point it was written in a Latin script and also in a Cyrillic script, and now it's Arabic script. Um, So first of all, you would have to learn uh, the alphabet, the letters. Um, And I personally, I did learn some Arabic um, during my studies, only a year or so. So I didn't find the script too difficult, but for me, the pronunciation was really difficult because the words are really long um, and everything is put together together on one word. So accusative and, you know, places that you go, it's, I don't really know the linguistic words for that. I'm not a linguist. You also all put them at the end of one word. So it's really, um, it has a very different structure linguistically from, from what Chinese is. Um, and the names of people are also really long. That's really something that I struggled with. So, um, you know, in, in, in China, sometimes we'll, we'll, um, sometimes people will give you an English name because they assume as a foreigner, you're not able to pronounce Chinese names. And I always thought that was kind of a shame because they, a lot of people have English names, I think, that don't really fit their character because they're not really their names. So I always ask them, you know, what is your Chinese? Just tell me your Chinese name. I, I will learn it. You know, next week I will have it down. But then I went to Xinjiang and with Uyghurs, it's even more extreme. Like I literally couldn't remember the names of people. And I had this little scrapbook where I would write down the names of my friends and actually learn them. And also, you know, kind of how the pronunciation works so that I wouldn't forget the pronunciation. So I, I had a really hard time with learning that just because the words are so, so long. And then people there also have Chinese names. So the Uyghur name, because they're so difficult to pronounce to Chinese people, uh, the Chinese will often 
um, phonetically translate the Uyghur name into Chinese so that it has Chinese characters. So Uyghur on their passport, on their identity card will have a Chinese name with Chinese characters. And usually it's about, I would say maybe six or eight Chinese characters for just the first name. So it's really, <laughs> oh. it's really a big deal. And yeah, that's, that's maybe also um, one of the main impressions that I got from Xinjiang. It's always difficult for me to figure out what people are called. I'm used to it now, but at first it was really a struggle because I felt so embarrassed to constantly ask people what their name is, although I had already met them several times. Wow, yeah, that's <laughs> I literally never knew that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, well, because sometimes they um, have uh, abbreviations for their names. So if somebody is a teacher, a Uyghur is a teacher in a Han Chinese school, they, of course, will be called uh, So maybe somebody will be Ta Laoshe or Ma Laoshe. But actually, the Ta and the Ma is just an abbreviation for their very, very long name that consists oh. of eight uh, Chinese characters, but it's just too difficult to pronounce. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that must be tough remembering such long names. Mm -hmm. No, I really had a hard time. <laughs> yeah. And you were also mentioning that uh, you originally were doing some research there, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Can you maybe talk about like what that research was about? Well, uh, the research was about Minka Han Uyghur women. Um, so I wanted to um, research. Well, when I first went there, I didn't really have a very detailed research question, but I was just interested in Uyghur Minka Han women because I had worked in the region before and I met a lot of women, especially in their 20s and their 30s. And they expressed that they had a really um, strong pressure of getting married, which is, of course, also the case for all Chinese women, I would say, you know, that's a big issue, marriage pressure. So that's what first got me interested in women in Western China and the, um, the various challenges that they experienced with marriage pressure in regard to their family, to their parents, but also in regard to society as a whole. Um, and then I met those Min Kao Han. So it's Minzu de Min, Kaoshu de Kao, and Hanzu de Han. So there are Chaoshu Minzu that are educated at Han Chinese schools. Um, and for me, that was a really fascinating topic because due to their education, they experience, well, I would even say some discrimination from other Uyghurs because they're not considered genuine or authentic Uyghurs. They often don't speak the language well or not at all. Um, they often don't really know about Uyghur customs, traditions, or cultures, um, and often they also have a, I would say, difficult relationship with being Muslim. Uh, let's put it like that. <laughs> so um, basically, my research was about these kind of women, and I investigated in how far they deal with this very specific position that they have in Uyghur society. Um, in regard to them being a woman, uh, having marriage pressure, having the pressure to um, have kids, um, also who to marry. They're usually not allowed to marry Han Chinese at that time. Um, and so you could say it was like a mixture of Chinese studies and gender studies. Mm, wow, yeah, that sounds like a very interesting topic to research about. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And are you, are you planning to like continue um, going forward with this research, like uh, going back to China maybe to continue? Well, now it's really difficult to go back, uh, not just of COVID, but obviously the situation in Xinjiang has changed. I was there before 2017. It was still um, not so sensitive to go there. Um, I was still able to carry out some research. And now I really can tell if I would be able to go back there again. Um, I was thinking about maybe going to other places in China and talk to Uyghurs. And for now, I have focused on Uyghurs living in Europe, on Uyghur women in Europe, um, in the diaspora, because I I really don't know what's going to happen. And researching in China is always difficult, Mm -hmm. but I still do like that topic. Although I think this might have been the last generation of Minka Han, because uh, from the early years of 2000, there were only bilingual schools, which are not really bilingual. You you only study in, in Chinese at the school, so you don't really learn any Uyghur. So because of this political situation and because of the circumstances, I'm not sure if the whole research topic is still something that's doable and also if it's something that still exists, if these people, you know, if there is a new generation. Um, But I'm definitely still interested in the topic and hopefully um, I will come up with something new that I can research about still in Xinjiang. I I do really like Xinjiang, yeah. Yeah, well, I hope that all goes well with your future research topic. It honestly was quite, um, yeah, upsetting seeing like the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in China right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a big topic that I don't think we have the time to open up here. Um, I'm also really used to framing it very carefully because it's such a big topic. yeah, but hopefully I will be able to go back there and also see some of my friends that I wasn't able to talk to for a really long time. Uh, I'm really not able to contact them at all. So I hope in the future I will be able to get back into contact again. Yeah, well, I think that's all the questions that I had on my end. But did you want to add anything else? Um, well... I think we, we, we covered most of it. Um, I mean, there's always more to say about, <laughs> about China and about learning Chinese. We didn't now speak too much about the, you know, the language learning. Um, I really haven't, I really just wanna say that, you know, if you're learning Chinese right now, don't give up. It seems like it's a never ending journey. I've been really learning Chinese for, I think maybe 15 years and just, I would even say just a few years ago, I really started to get into it and to feel 100% comfortable in um, in conversations, personal conversations or at work. It's really a long journey. So I just want to encourage everybody who's interested. It's really doable. You just have to have motivation. And if you do, I think you can do it. Right. Yeah, that's a really great piece of advice. Chinese as a language is extremely complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the millions of characters. But yeah, thank you for sharing that advice. Yeah, sure, sure. Okay, well, it was great talking to you. I loved hearing about um, your travel experiences and kind of mm-hmm. your journey with learning languages. So I hope all goes well. And yeah, thank you so much again. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye-bye.
Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you found it incredibly insightful as I've definitely learned something new. Please tune in for future episodes. And if you would like to be a guest on my podcast, please reach out to me at Claire's Languages on Instagram. Thank you so much and I hope to see you soon.